You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Hi everyone, Annie here for Solidarity Breakfast, the last put together remotely. Next week we will be live, which will be great. Today we're going to talk to Sue Bolton, who was recontesting her council seat at Moreland Council about fraudulent voting in the northwest ward of Moreland that, that has come to light. We have the 12th instalment of the dispatches from East Gippsland. Over the Wall has a first-hand account of a young person living under the curse of the cashless debit card. Kevin rounds up the week and we end with a chat with Dr Noah Fazil after a long absence. The Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy is asking for support. On Monday 26th, of October, a sacred directions tree was cut down on Jabarung women's country. Traditional owners have called this an act of cultural genocide, and more sacred trees remain under threat as works continue. Here's what you can do. 1. Come to the embassy and protect the trees on the ground. Visit the Jabarung Heritage Protection Embassy Facebook page for more information about how to get there and what to bring. 2. Ring Daniel Andrews on 96515000 and let him know what you think. 3. Educate yourself about the situation and spread the word to others. 4. Donate to the Embassy on their GoFundMe page. 3CR supports the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy. No trees, no treaties. You're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, your community radio station. Despite COVID, local council elections have been going on across Victoria with apparently unprecedented voter returns. A strange anomaly in voting numbers in the northwest ward of Moreland was uncovered by the Victorian Electoral Commission. When the fraudulent voting came to light, the Victorian Socialist Alliance Party called for a new election in the ward. I spoke to Sue Bolton, a re-elected councillor in another Moreland Council ward, for some details about the controversy. Northwest ward of Moreland Council were called together by the... Um, BEC because there'd been some trouble with uh, irregular voting. Can you explain to our listeners what went on? What happened? So it was the North West Ward, so it's not my ward, but it's a neighbouring ward, which covers the suburbs of Glenroy, Pascavale, Hadfield, Oak Park. And basically what the Victorian Electoral Commissioner said was that they had noticed a much higher than normal um, applica- a number of applications for um, 
an extra ballot paper, much higher than the other two wards. And then when it came to opening the Group B envelopes, um, which those are the um, ballot papers that were posted on uh, the day before the election closed, and they suddenly noticed that a very high number of those were from people who'd already been checked off as having been having voted. And then they compared the signatures and then they noticed that a whole lot of signatures didn't match the signatures of people when they enrolled to vote. And so they set aside those um, they set aside those votes um, and you know probably ref- and have referred them to the police for an investigation. But there are already suspected to be hundreds, if not thousands, of fraudulent votes already in the system for the first bulk of um, votes which were counted last Friday, and there's no way of identifying which one which votes are fraudulent because, of course, you know we've got a secret ballot, so all you know votes are secret, and they're all just mixed in with all the other ballot papers. So that's really how the Electoral Commission identified fraud. There had already been some rumours amongst uh, candidates and individuals in Northwest Ward. There'd already been some rumours about um, people buying ballot papers and also people stealing um, the ballots, ballot envelopes out of people's letterboxes. But of course, you can't totally prove that. Um, there's no, you know, direct evidence. Um, I think it was all just rumour. But then you put those rumours together with this uh, indication of systematic fraud that the Victorian Electoral Commission uncovered. Um, and yeah, that so you know that's all subject to a police investigation. This is also the first time there's ever been a postal ballot in Moreland. So it's also um, a situation where a lot of people would <coughs> not have even known that <coughs> there were elections coming up because it's not like they were well publicised and would not have been expecting ballot papers to arrive in the mail. So some people might not have noticed that they never received a ballot paper um, if, if mail was stolen, stolen from their letterbox and because there was no information to let people know that council elections were coming up and that they'd receive uh, a ballot in, through the post. And possibly um, the person or persons who organised this, um, you, know, uh, you know, they possibly thought, oh, postal ballot, easy to manipulate. But of course, they didn't bank on some checking um, mechanisms through the VEC. So, the what's so uh, significant about the Northwest Ward? Is there something about the Northwest Ward in particular that uh, is uh, prime for reading the vote? Well, I think the two northern suburbs, northern wards, um, attracted a much higher number of right-wing candidates. And in particular, in my ward, um, there was an organised group of right-wing independents who uh, did very tight preference swapping um, to get the left out of council. Um, but in the northwest ward, um, the allegations centre around uh, a candidate called Murad El Halabi. Now, nothing's been proven against him, 
um, but he is a property developer and he's been on council before. I gather he lost in 2008. He's been named in the media as a person of interest in this investigation and he's a member of the ALP. Um, although I, I think a number of many people in the local ALP branches were very upset about him uh, being imposed on them to stand in the council elections. Um, so I gather um, he was anointed by the ALP's administrative tribunal or something along those, a name along those lines, which was disbanded after the Adam Sumurak branch stacking scandal. Um, now, I'm not sure exactly which faction the lad lines up to, and nothing's been proven against him, uh, but you know, there have been r- many rumours swirling around about him. So, because it's a postal vote, uh, you know, you'd sort of think that there would be, um, you'd know how many people, were, uh, the total amount of people who were voting, you'd think. Well, they there's a number of enrolled voters and then they send out that number of ballot papers but of course, people can always have not have received their ballot paper through the post. I mean, lots of stuff goes astray in the post. People might spoil their ballot paper, lose their ballot paper. There's all sorts of legitimate reasons why people might need a new ballot paper. And there were people on the last day of the election ringing saying, how do we vote? I never received a ballot paper. So people who were not switched on to the council elections earlier, otherwise they would have been able to request a new ballot paper be posted out. So there's legitimate reasons why people might ring for another ballot paper and the VEC isn't able to tell um, which is the legitimate vote. Is is it the vote that's already been counted or the vote of the person who called in for a replacement ballot paper because the ballot never arrived? I mean, they don't, they can't detect, you know, they're assuming that the first lot of votes are the legitimate ones, but they don't really know because it also could be the other way around. Yeah, yeah. And the they can tell that there's taken. more votes because the, the total number of votes is too many. Oh, well, they could do that, but it's more um, the how they managed to pick it up is when they discovered you know, because you have that flap that you have to sign on the yep, envelope yep. and put your date of birth and your name. And so that's on the outer envelope from memory. Yeah, And yeah. so they they tear those off and compare them to the electoral roll. Yes. And they tick those people off. So then if someone, se- someone um, sends in a ballot paper of the same name, um, that's really like, you know, because you're not meant to vote twice. Um, it's a criminal offence. Um, they then um, have to work out what's happened. And then they discovered many more examples of this than you'd find ever normally in a normal election. Or I don't know if this happens yeah, yeah, at I'll, all normally. But, uh, um, who knows? But it probably wouldn't be, might just be one or two or might do this, but... This is like a systematic attempt to fraud the system. And possibly um, whoever did attempt the fraud possibly didn't realise there were checking mechanisms within the VEC. I think they just thought, oh, this is easy, postal ballot. Um, we'll, um, you know, we'll, um, we can do this. 
Now the VEC, so, now the yeah. VEC said that it ha- it, it's it's legally required to continue the vote and and see what the outcome is, and then they would go to VCAT to dispute it. Yeah, so the VCAT has so the VC yeah they declared the polls and Northwest Ward and declared the candidates elected, um, which are two independents. Uh, one of them sort of a white right wing populist candidate who's ex-ALP, another more conservative independent, someone from the Greens, and um, this candidate from the ALP, Milad Al-Halabi, were all duly elected. So now that the poll is declared, the Victorian Electoral Commission is going to take a lodger submission with BCAT um, to work out what to do with the election for Northwest Ward of Moreland Council. They're also going to make a complaint to the local government inspectorate and the police have started an investigation. But there's um, something which the CEO of Moreland Council has to work out what to do, and that is whether or not she will uh, form the council or not, or form the council without the councillors in Northwest Ward. I mean, really, you need a new election in that ward, and a couple of the candidates in that ward are saying, no, no, we don't want a new election. But really, like, that election is on the basis of fraudulent votes and even if you do a recount of the votes you're not going to be able to find those votes and isolate them you'll be counting uh counting recounting votes which some of which are fraudulent and we don't know how many are fraudulent could be you know hundreds or thousands and so so you need a new election yeah, and also it encourages people who want to uh, besmirch an uh, election, muddy the waters, uh, it rewards them, mm. potentially. And I think, I think um, you know, probably one of the biggest sources of corruption in local council areas is often developers. Now, it's not the only source of corruption, but, you know, that's, I think, a big one because councils, local councils are um, responsible for development applications. I think it's possibly even worse in sometimes in coastal areas or the outskirts, um, which is, you know, what happened with Casey Council and that developer, John Woodman, who, you know, had a number of councillors in his pay and he'd donated to a number of councillors, mainly independent and liberal councillors, but I also gather his tentacles stretched into Labor as well. Um, and I noticed in the Hume Council area, two of the wards there, we thought we had a lot of candidates in the um, in the Moreland wards, especially the two northern wards, but in two of the wards in um, in Hume, they had 27 and 29 candidates respectively. Wow. And I think part of that, is likely to be, now I don't know all the ins and outs of who was standing in the Hume elections, but I think because the government has expanded the urban growth boundary, so there is, um, on the outskirts of the Hume Council, there is a lot of farmland, what used to be farmland, which will be rezoned as residential. And those sort of decisions allow developers to make an absolute killing so rather than just massive profits, they, they rake in super massive profits. So I think that's sort of one of the reasons why there is this level of contest in the outer suburbs, in the urban 
growth areas. Yeah, yeah, it makes complete sense. It also splits the vote, so you can be quite strategic about how you expect it to uh, or manipulate it towards an outcome, I presume. Plus, I think in postal elections, I mean, you can have dummy candidates in attendance elections as well, Mm. but I think... um, it's easier to stand dummy candidates in postal elections because they don't have to do anything to look legitimate. The ballot paper rolls out with their name and photo and candidate statement and they may or may not distribute a leaflet. But it's sort of, you know, it is a way of passing votes on. And, you know, I mean, yeah, I suspect it's to do with the development industry and, and development and that's possibly you know, behind um, the vote tampering in the northwest Warden Moreland. But, you know, I mean, we're not going to know that 100% until the outcome of the investigation. Uh, but um, socialists did do reasonably well in some areas. How did you go? So I got re-elected on 12% of the vote in the northeast Ward. Congratulations. And, um, yeah. So well deserved. That was... Um, Thank you. Um, so I, um, you know, I was on a ticket of Socialist Alliance members. I'm a member of Socialist Alliance and Community Independence. Um, so we stood in all the wards in Moreland. Um, Victorian Socialists also stood in a number of areas, and um, there were some areas they went very well, including in Maribyrnong, where it looks like they will win a seat. Um, Social Alliance also stood in a seat in Geelong where we got almost 16% of the vote, um, but didn't want, that wasn't enough to get elected in that ward, but a very good result. And I gather in Yarra, the counting is happening today, um, and there are, you know, um, Steve Jolly has got a massive vote of 30%, and another socialist on uh, Yarra Council is standing again. And I understand from when they were involved in the ballot extraction process, her near sort of indicated she was on 15% or something. It looked like she was getting about 15%, but we'll, won't know that until the Yarra count, counting is finished at the end of today. Um, but in Moreland, there was a big swing against the Greens, although the Greens ended up getting four councils elected again, but there was quite a big swing against the Greens and the Labor Party remained, you know, pretty much stable. That's interesting. Can you, uh, have you any opinions about that? I mean, I know that uh, following uh, some of the stuff that was happening around the Preston market, uh, it led led one to wonder uh, what the Greens' view was uh, around uh, local heritage issues. But, uh, I mean, that's not your, uh, not... um, that council, but I was wondering if there's a something happening locally that uh, makes people wonder about the uh, the position of the Greens locally. I think there are probably several things, but I think um, there were some issues where I think they had a very bureaucratic, high-handed approach, and three of the four Greens on the last council didn't stand again. Um, but like one issue, I think crystallised a lot of anger about against the Greens. And now there might have, would have been some people who might have been against the Greens because of progressive positions on particular issues. But I think um, I think they on the issue of parking, where they 
were responsible for new parking restrictions, which would have made it very difficult for a lot of people in a lot of areas because it's sort of it's sort of thinking that you can stop people using cars by simply restricting parking and then you'll force people. So in a sense, it's a top-down bureaucratic approach. You can force people to stop using cars by just making it difficult for them. So it's almost like they think it's a moral issue that, you know, you you just are too lazy to change your habits when actually it's a system issue. You need, I mean, I agree you, and I think all socialists should you know, be supporting reduction in the number of cars on the roads. We need to to save the planet, but also even traffic congestion and releasing space for other things. But the question is how you do it. And just punishing people who need a car to get to work or or to visit, you know, sick mother in the outskirts suburb or family in the bush or whatever doesn't cause uh, change. You need to provide public transport alternatives and which are fast, frequent and free and that you need to deal with the system. And I would say one of the things that's led to a big increase in the number of cars on the road, well, two things, is um, the casualisation of work because to use public transport you need fixed locations of work and um, definite predictable hours. And secondly, I think ever since we've had the whole thing of... um, parents being guilt-tripped into thinking they're bad parents if they don't send their kids to a private school or a selective government school. Um, it means that a lot of parents drive their kids to schools and suburbs away and so rather than going to the local school. So, you know, I think that, that also puts a lot of cars on the road. So there's all sorts of things that influence people's usage of cars and you have to address those issues. And I reckon if you got rid of casual work and everyone had stable, secure jobs with predictable hours, that would really massively help with reducing car usage and then it's an and coupled with a massive expansion in the public transport network. So um, with your uh, with uh, Moreland, uh, w- because there's a controversy, uh, you're now waiting to see when the next council meeting will happen. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So we don't know what's going to happen in Moreland. Um, yeah, so we're waiting for information about that. Um, I mean, it is possible that they could uh, choose to just wear in two wards of councillors. I know that happened when... I was first elected, um, the ward I was in wasn't sworn in until later than the other two wards. So, And I can't remember the reason for that now. So that is possible. Um, but I also don't know how long VCAT will decide to, will take to determine what's going to happen with the Moreland um, election for North West Ward. You'd hope they'd sort of try and do it quickly. But you know, knowing the pace at which VCAT moves, it could be months. Yeah, and, and also could be some have, legal challenges. Yeah, yeah. Have you heard of any other uh, council elections where this has happened at this time, or is it just here? Are you just the lucky um, ones? Not this time. Not not as far as I know. And apparently, this is the first time it's ever happened in Moreland. And I'm not sure. I'm sure it would have. This would have happened in other places, but I mean, it's probably not current. Not a common occurrence. 
but um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, well, that's interesting, isn't it? Summer, yeah, very interesting. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you won. I'm. I'm. It's well deserved, <laughs> as I said. I'm so glad. And no thanks, worries. Thanks, Annie. And thanks for talking to me. Bye. Join the global slut walk movement to end slut shaming and victim blaming. Tune into 3CR on November 14th at 1pm. Turn it up loud and let the speeches fill the streets. Tell the world, even in a pandemic, we will not be silenced. Slutwalk, it's a controversial name, not a controversial message. Slutwalk Melbourne, it's a 3CR supporter. Good girls bet a man with a beard, but God is a woman and she's tough and she's queer. Good girls are waiting in the pins and the bad girls. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science, and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. East Gippsland Dispatch. Voices and stories of community and resilience from East Gippsland. Hello, this is Fiona with another East Gippsland Dispatch. This week we are lucky enough to be out in the field with field ecologist and conservationist Rena Gabarov. Rena is a scientist who rediscovered a frog that was thought to be extinct a number of years ago and I was lucky enough to go out with her while she tried to find some more of these frogs in Far East Gippsland. So, Enjoy it. What sort of frogs are they? They're Ewing's tree frogs. They're not as good. Tree frogs. They're a common tree frog. So, I've got the quarters out for an endangered frog and um, I'm just collecting them. They've been out for nearly a year. And so we're just seeing if they're calling at these sites and it's interesting because these sites have been burnt. So one has been found here since fire. Um, and these recorders have been recording every night. These ones have run out now, but they recorded every night for probably close to six or seven months. And so we're going to look at the temperature and humidity. We've got data loggers for that as well. And if they called when they called 
and check the rainfall and also check that they're at these sites after fire and we also look at the water where they where the um, recorders are to see if there's tadpoles or eggs to see if they've bred because a lot of the time you find a single frog male because only the male frogs call um, advertising to the females and a lot of the time you'll find a male frog or more so than just a female frog but that doesn't mean they'll necessarily breed if you just find one and then they stay there for often with the males they'll stay there calling for a month or so and then just move on because they're a rare animal you know they're endangered for one reason and it's believed that the frog's endangered because of um, a fungus that has that affects has affected frogs globally and caused declines and extinctions and it's believed that this frog is also affected by this fungus but there's not much data on it and no direct evidence which the direct evidence is hard to find but once a once an animal gets becomes scarce then all these other things come into play like it can't find a mate because there's not many animals in the population so they breed less so therefore there's less of them and I think this frog is um suffers from that a little as well and then other things affect it more um so with this frog it's a very generalist frog so it doesn't actually it has quite um interesting breeding habitat it will breed any like in still water in a Gippsland it breeds but it will breed anywhere, like a puddle, a muddy puddle on the side of the road. It's happy to breed there if it could find a mate. The thing is with all these puddles on the side of the road, so it goes into culverts. Culverts aren't too bad, except for when they want to do the road up and they come and empty all the culverts and they have like, you know, this endangered frog in them. So these sort of road areas that hold this still water can be good and can promote breeding for the frog but they can also be ecological traps where the frogs will breed they might have eggs and then it doesn't there's the water doesn't stay there long enough or it dries up and so it the frogs don't actually become frogs from tadpoles or the eggs don't actually become tadpoles These guys that are calling now are cousins of these fellas. They're in the same frog group. So the noise that we were playing before, was that the, the male frog noise? Yeah, so that's the male frog call. So all frogs have different calls and they can be identified by those calls and so that's the call of the large brown tree frog. Um, the large brown tree frog here, um, it ranges from East Gippsland and it was thought that it ranged up to the Wattagans um, just near Newcastle in New South Wales but recently they um, they published um, a paper on its taxonomy and it's actually a different species down here. Um, so now it's changed its name. It was Latoria Little Johnny, and now it's Latoria Watsoni from 
south of Sydney down to East Gippsland and that could be further broken up again. So if you're looking at it as a threatened species that ranges from Newcastle to East Gippsland, it's now a threatened species that ranges even less. And so with that population, when it was thought of that they were one species, those northern ones were a lot more better off. Um, They were found more in the landscape it was the southern ones that were rarer so now that they've realized they're two different species it sort of makes the frog even rarer yeah and so they thought it was extinct didn't they for ages well they didn't know because it has to be extinct for 30 years before it's extinct but it wasn't found for a 20 year period and there was a break from like 90 to 2015 when not a single frog was found in that period in Victoria. And then what happened? Uh, and then um, then someone was surveying for something else <laughs> and they um, came across um, one of these frogs right close to here actually. So we're currently in the Snowy River National Park on Waratah Flats Road and the frog was found, re-found on Yalmi Road, which is just the road we've just come off. So we're really in Far East Gippsland and this whole place, we're looking out into a really burnt landscape from the fires about eight months ago now and the full moon's rising over the black trees. How do you think the fire might have affected the frog? Or we just don't know yet. Well, so this frog, um, when we started finding more of these frogs, it was actually after the 2014 bushfires and in areas that were badly affected. So we do know that this frog has some capacity to come back after fire. Three sites that were burnt have had tadpoles. So it's quite positive for this frog after fire Um, unlike a lot of the other animals around here this one I'm not sure what it does there would have been direct deaths and all the breeding areas that were burnt and had tadpoles post fire all of those would died through the fire Um, the oxygen got taken out of the water so none of those tadpoles existed after fire that were too young to have become frogs but we'll just see. Drought is way worse than fire. Um, leading up to the fire, it was really hard to find these guys at a lot of the fight sites that you were finding them in the last rain years in the La Nina. Um, and because everything's drying up and they were saying like we're in a La Nina now, but they're saying that they're a lot like this is a lot drier for a La Nina than it should be. Mm. So I don't know what's going to happen with all the areas drying up. That's actually way worse for this frog. Although climate change is making us have more huge fires, it's the long drought and the dry that is going to affect this frog. And the numbers that we found in large landscape scale surveys in 2019 from 2017 were about only 50% or less. So let's, let's go have another look for some tatties. Yeah, let's go. Ooh. Oh, wow. 
What did you find? Oh. In the water. You have to put the torch on. Mm -hmm. No, I better put the torch on. It's going to be really hard because the water's brown, so if it goes under. Where is Oh, yeah, I see it. On that On thing. that thing. This is really hard because it jumps into the water and there's the bars. So let's see if I can do it. Yep. Oh, can you tell if it's a boy or a girl? Yeah. Um, I can tell. Oh, it's so cute. From its thumbs. So it's a boy, which I guessed it was a boy before I looked because it's smaller. The boys are smaller. But you know for sure, because see that thing on its thumb? Yeah. That pad that helps it stick to the girl oh. when it's mating. I don't wet him though before I put him in here. And then get my swabbing gear ready and I'll measure him as well. Toes, please. Toes, good. Thank you. Just make them go like that. Yes, let's do it with this foot. Yep. Good on you. And can we just do your belly? Yeah. Thanks, maybe. We'll do that chin wrinkle. That might have some fungus on it if you've got fungus. That's where they sing out of. He must have been calling before. Can we just do this? I oh, know you're very slippery and you're going to away but we'll put you in the water soon so that was Rena Gabarov field ecologist in Far East Gippsland we found three frogs that night they didn't respond to the callbacks but Rena managed to spot their eye reflection in her torchlight 20 metres into the bush and discovered them. She really is an incredible frog whisperer. If you want to see footage and some photos of the frogs, we'll put them up online and you can have a look. They're really cute. That's it for now. See you next time. It is time. It is time. Peace, this is Rod Stars. What up, this is G1. This is DJ Illinois. And together we are Rebel, Rebel Diaz. And whenever we are here, we listen to 855 AM, 3CRD Digital, 3CR.org.au. You already know what it is. Free Radical Radio, let's go. 3CR. The future. on over the wall recently about the legislation going through for expansion of the cashless welfare card, the areas that have been made into permanent sites and the new areas to be included in this legislation. And there's currently a Senate inquiry ahead of this legislation being passed and an article in The Guardian Tuesday the 3rd of November by Luke Henry Gomes said that only 10 of the 132 submissions to the Senate inquiry support the government's cashless welfare card bill, which aims to make the current trial sites permanent and expand the scheme into the Northern Territory and Cape York.
90% of submissions expressed major concerns about the expansion of the cashless welfare card and how it's been impacting communities thus far. The Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner June Oscar has said that the application of the card had, quote, not been shown to be reasonable, necessary and proportionate and that the current trials were not warranted. This week on Over the Wall, while our Senate considers the expansion of the cashless welfare card, we're going to listen to a personal account of somebody and how the card's impacting their life. I think in the big cities and in the mainstream media, this issue is not getting much coverage. But there are tens of thousands of people who are being impacted by this cashless welfare card in remote rural areas that have been left out of sight and are not getting the consideration that should be required by the media in reporting of this issue. So that's why on Over the Wall today and in coming weeks, we want to bring you the personal voices, the stories of people. And these stories have been compiled by the Say No 7 group and No Cashless Welfare Card Australia group, who ran an online open forum page called The Feed to express these personal opinions. And thanks to Say No 7 and No Cashless Welfare Card Australia and Catherine Wilkes for giving us permission to broadcast some of these personal stories on Over the Wall. Our second speaker is from the Hinkler Electorate, which is trial zone number four. I'd like to introduce everyone to Emily. Welcome to the feed, Emily. And what would you like Australia to know about the card? I'm just going to start at the start. When I got put onto the card, a little bit from back then and a little bit about me. So November last year was when I was put on the card. It was after doing a a year worth of full-time study. It was an attempt to get myself out of the hospitality industry to gain some more stable employment in admin. Mm -hmm. Um, So November 2019, I was put on the card. This was pre-COVID, so I was getting $40 a day income. So with that sort of money, I, I couldn't afford food. I couldn't afford a lot of things. amount of times on Facebook groups trying to merely put my opinion out. Too many times I was belittled and demeaned, told to go get a job and all of these things. And yeah. How do you feel when someone tells you to just go get a job? At this point, I have a job now. Two months ago, I got a job. So I have been unemployed for nine months since my study. I have been for every job interview I have been allowed to go to. I have applied for every job that I can get my resume to. I am a passionate, driven young person that I don't want to be out of work. I did as much as I could. So when I have a a random stranger on Facebook commenting, telling me that I should just go out and get a job, they don't understand how much effort on a day-to-day basis that I put in. I volunteer. I do so many things. I go for an interview and I get turned back, knocked down. That's another severe mental health hit. You know, Mm -hmm. it's another shot to my self-worth. And mind you, 
I didn't have very good mental health to begin with. Yeah. You set yourself up to, you know, think about how you're the best person, how you're going to make the best employee. And, yeah, it's debilitating, you know. You are working now? Yes. And you're still on a card now? I am underemployed, still on Mm. a payment, uh, still on injury. Okay. The next topic I would really like to touch on is the uh, rent issues that I had with injury. So just so everybody who's not on Indu knows, with your rent, it is put on a 28-day cycle, so the two weeks. Previous to being put on Indu, I have never once been late in paying my rent. Just keep that in mind. So I can't even remember the amount of times Indu has made me late. I have lost count of how many times my rent has been paid late due to Indu. So were I to report late human error I guess yes my part I report one day late it sets my payment back one day late my rent payments cancelled I have to I have to phone Inju and reschedule my rent payment so that being said that's human error Inju from themselves I have gotten technical difficulties as an excuse for my rent being paid late due to Inju my rent payments keep a roof above my head I simply couldn't. Nobody can. Who can on $40 a day? So with my rent struggles, with being late repetitively, I went through a series of trying to find how I could get ahead in my rent. So with an injury card, I believe it's every 30 days you get $200 that you can freely transfer out of that account to wherever you wish it to go. That $200 a month was not enough for me to get a fortnight ahead in my rent. One of the very first times I felt stigmatized by the injury card, I went through Centerpay and spent three hours on the phone with an employee there who had no idea what injury or a cashless debit card was. I had to explain what the trial was, where my region was. 80% of my money is sequestered into a separate account. She had no idea. I spent three hours going back and forth with her and her manager to get no result. I live in a share house with three other adults. Centerpay system is I would have to pay the entirety of the rent for three adults to have them take it out of my account. I simply cannot afford that. I can't do that. I can't trust the other housemates to pay me on time. That situation just doesn't work for a young person in a a share house. It just doesn't work. Uh, Well, it didn't work for me. So going through on how to get ahead in my rent, I called Indu and I said to them, this is my scenario, this is my situation. What do I need to do to have that money accessed? And the lady told me I would need to get my mom. Uh, she wrote me a letter to tell Indu that I needed to get ahead in my rent. At 28 years of age, I had to get my mother to write me a letter. I wow. cannot explain to you how demeaning that is. 
how belittling that is for a person who is already on welfare, who is already feeling worthless, overlooked, shunned. I could go on this forever, but I think I have to cut it now. My throat's giving out. Thank you, Emily. It was amazing hearing your story and your struggle has been echoed for years on our pages. So many people. But to hear your voice today, to hear you speak as a young person is really profound and really powerful. Can I just say the destruction of my mental health while I was in on Inju was just abhorrent. I, I, I can't even put into words how worthless I felt. I feel. I feel. Today, I still feel worthless. Thank you, Emily. The hearts are all going out to you. This is a public service announcement. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. 855 AM. A weak solidarity bricky team listener when the Ethics Centre, in a joint report with Deloitte Access to Your Money, estimate that a 10% rise in ethical behaviour by Troublawazi caring business and government would add 45 billion, real figure, 45 billion to the gross domestic product. So that's 45 billion we'll never see bringing us to the standard ethics of the caring business class. Our older listener will recall that fine entrepreneur and dedicated practitioner of business class ethics, Mike Gore, a major player in what was labelled the White Shoe Brigade back in the days of Joe Belchy Peterson, Russ Hunt's bribes and the gang up in Her Most Gracious Majesty's Land who kept finding brown paper bags stacked with money landing on their doorsteps and turning up on their desks. No idea where they came from. Mike doing wonders for the environment at, among other things, his Sanctuary Code Resort. With some silly suggestions, there might have been the odd connection between the wonders for the environment and the proliferation of brown paper bags. Well, Mike Sion Craig followed his dad into development and investment, investment meaning getting other people to invest in him, making billions, making the filthy riches to the filthy rich list, before running into a bit of trouble like owing 500 mil to investors and going bankrupt. Bad luck for the investors, but Mike dragged himself up again by his Swiss leather bootstraps and began an investment business for self-funded superannuants, who obviously self-funded Craig. And very, very sad news, listener. Hate to destroy your weekend so early. In fact, perhaps your mood for a long time. But at this very moment, poor Craig is in a prison cell, awaiting sentence for losing heaps more of the money with which he was entrusted or getting their money a bit confused with his own. With even more, sadly, more charges pending for swindling investors or more correctly, allegedly swindling investors as if. So spare a thought for poor Craig. It does leave us to ponder, though, why anyone would entrust even one cent to a like father, like son, scion of the White Shoe Brigade, the the upholder of real business ethics. 
upheld conscientiously here in our very own state by trans forgot to clean, bribing its way, or, or sorry, investing its way to the contract to clean our trains, handed billions more because of the coronavirus, adopting the sensible attitude that with so few people using public transport, it was a waste to give lazy avaricious workers a little of the billions when it could pocket the lot. With some people, some anti-caring business class, long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden worker and iron lot suggesting that before the credo that contracting out public services removes them from the bloated, inefficient hand of the public sector, the cleaning would have been undertaken by public employees. And they ludicrously add it would have been a hell of a lot cheaper and then to twist the knife in the wound, the super efficient private sector they claim on top of all that, the job would have been done. The trains would have been cleaned. When all trains forgot to clean did, when all poor locked in a remand cell Craig did was practice standard business ethics. The Ethics Council and Deloitte Access to Your Money call for a 10% rise in business ethics does, of course, concede something about the morality of the caring business class, doesn't it? Although using the week that was standard business ethics behaviour, a 10% increase in that would have the mind boggling. On the inefficient, bloated public sector, the New South Wales caring business class government big economic guru Dominic Perro-Payless described its reduction of public service, service wage rises to 1.5%, 1.5% as very generous. It's completely fair and reasonable and very generous in the circumstances, Dominic announced. Um, what circumstances are they, Dom? Uh, the circumstances that it's uh, 1.5% more than we'd like to pay them. It's been all generosity for New South Wales public servants as their caring business class con mission recently awarded them a giant 0.3% pay rise, which would have led to wild celebratory all-night parties in public servant households and offices. The con mission arguing the giant 0.3% wage explosion was due to the pandemic. So we can assume the government will also use the pandemic to restrict caring business class profits to a range of 03 to 1.5%. Despite government and con mission largesse, the usual suspects, Evil Unions New South Wales and the Bloody Public Service Union, claimed it wasn't very generous in the circumstances. You just can't please them, can you? That it will signal to the private sector to keep wages low, when we know slow wage growth is one of the caring employers' biggest worries. They just can't see a solution. And a long-haired commie Sydney Uni Business School professor claimed... How ludicrous is this? It would entrench low-wage growth as a community norm. Typical academic with no concept of the real world, the sort of removed-from-reality academic like the evil unions who reckon the solution to slow wages growth is staring caring employers in the face. Why, if it was, the caring employers would be the first to solve the problem. Oh, how could we forget? 
there was the US of the UN of the US of the world election. Still not quite resolved as we record this under our COVID schedule on Thursday morning, although it looks like the not Donald Trump or the poor candidate might win. Not Donald Trump or the poor, the kindest thing we can say about him. Although Donald has declared himself the winner. Not sure he meant of the vote or with the High Court judges he handpicked, but that it's close that the polls were way off again suggest it must be the United States of amnesia. People have forgotten the past four years, and doesn't it say heaps for the consciousness of the US of people that roughly half of them voted for Donald, who, despite some suggestions of a divided nation, said, there's a love in the US of like the world's never seen before. Greatest love ever, ever. Uh, What, everyone loves everyone else, Donald? No. Everyone loves me, greatest love me ever, ever. And if anyone doesn't believe in love like the world's never seen before, I hate them. Bad people, awful people, worst awful people ever, ever. And Donald and his vice puppet Mike Dollars and Pence assured us, we're going to protect the integrity of the vote. What? Make sure every vote is counted. Make sure every vote isn't counted. Best isn't counted ever, ever. Donald himself voted in Florida to where he has changed his residential address and, wait for this, some cynics suggested his motive was that Florida does not have state taxes, that it's a tax dodge. But why bother to tax dodge when you don't pay any taxes to dodge? Like when Donald tweets and talks, satire is going to miss him if he goes, sometimes we can't believe what we hear like counsel assisting the inquiry into the Crook Casino claiming Jamie Puker and his hedge people are not fit and proper persons to run a casino. Where would that come from, apart from the evidence? And anyway, as we've said before, if international precedent is a guide, as in the fit and proper people running casinos around the world, Jamie and the gang are perfectly fit and proper to run a casino. After all, 30 or so years ago, retired Supreme Court big Xavier Connor recommended against granting a casino license in Melbourne because of their link to and potential for crime. Thank goodness the next state government ignored that anti-caring business class standard ethics advice and granted fit and proper Jamie his private mint. On private mints, like the big four banks, the government does not endorse everything the highly respected bankers do, like the minister for being very upset, David Little to be proud of, being very upset that the ANZ bank declared it would change its policy on funding new fossils, David threatening to review government benefits like its deposit guarantees. The hayseed and sheepshit party will review every policy lever to protect us from these sorts of arbitrary boardroom ideological decisions. And we can but imagine the government's hurt that someone would bring ideology into the climate change debate, if there is such a thing as, expressed by a true blue Aussie capitalist review editorial on Jacinta Ardern's New Zealand victory. The prospects don't look good amid a ban on oil and gas exploration, a very expensive push from 85 to 100% green power, and other anti-growth gestures. See, 
opposing fossils and supporting non-fossils is anti-growth and just a useless smash the economy gesture on which, well good for all of us growth, finally we have a new fossil company in Trublawazi, Bravis, Bravis Mining and Resources. Well, not exactly new, it's Adani which has decided to change its name. But it's not what you think. It's assured us it was just time for a change. Nothing to do with the name Adani being, quote, toxic. Of course not, it's true blue Aussie supremo, David Bashoff protesters explained. The only thing toxic is what we do. Good morning. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. During October, the Commons Library is running a crowdfunder to help keep its collection updated and free to the public. To make a tax-deductible donation, visit www.commonslibrary.org. Commons Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. It is with great pleasure that I finished the last program of the COVID lockdown with a conversation with Dr Noah Pazil from Macquarie University in New South Wales. Noah's a regular on, on Solidarity Breakfast, but we haven't been able to catch up with him over the time. We were able to ask him about uh, recent developments regarding um, the Sudan, which has joined several Arab countries in a US-brokered process to normalise relations with Israel. I asked Noah about this, and like all good white rabbits, it led to unexpected revelations. We've now had three Arab countries um, sign up to normalising diplomatic ties with Israel, um, um, two Gulf states and Sudan. Uh, I mean, this was... I th- no, so well, let's take a step back. Um, events in Sudan in the last two years have been incredibly um, chaotic, uh, to say the least. Two years ago, almost two years ago, mid-December 2018, uh, there were mass uh, protests against uh, Omar al-Bashir, who'd been president since 19... 19- 89, um, and uh, some months later he was uh, finally overthrown by the military once they realised that violence and and oppression were um, inadequate to uh, stop the protests. They went on for months and months and uh, they cost many activist lives, but in the end the protesters achieved the aim of overthrowing Omar al-Bashir. I think we've spoken about this before. Um, Omar al-Bashir was um, uh, was um, uh, his his uh, when he was overthrown, uh, a transition a transitional um, military council was set up, not dissimilar to ones we've seen in other Arab states after the Arab Spring, and since then 
protesters have been trying to continue to push for a transfer of power to civilian rule, to democratic rule. And this group of um, military rulers and cronies of al-Bashir, these aren't people who have come in to succeed him and um, change the political system, but instead have worked very um, assiduously to ensure that there's minimal change, um, have done whatever they can to hold on to power. And I think that, and my sense of it is, and reading other people's views who are much closer to Sudan than I am, that the decision to accept um, or to normalise conditions with Israel was uh, part of that attempt to hold on to power. That is, uh, the US was willing to take Sudan off the list of states that support or sponsor terrorism, uh, a list that's been on since um, the mid-1990s when the U.S. was uh, when Sudan was involved in the bombings of um, embassies in um, East African countries, um, and uh, where U.S. citizens were killed, and uh, and with the Arab Gulf states, the states with uh, financial means, backing that move and also promising to pay back to pay the victims of those bombings, the American victims of those bombings compensation, I think the Sudan, Sudanese government saw this as a must-do um, to hold on to power. They needed the external support to hold on to power because the internal support has more or less dissipated, especially civilian support. And the amount of violence that has been low-level um, but ongoing violence that's being used by that Sudanese government to ensure that the transition, transitional uh, process is um, either obstructed altogether or results in minimal change to power structures of the country makes uh, is something that um, you know has been highlighted by a number of people. So the normalisation Israel now to take the why does the US want these normalisations? Well, Donald Trump, as we've just seen, um, has successfully mobilised a large. A uh, number of Americans to come out and vote for him, despite the fact that he has been one of the most ineffectual and some would say counterproductive presidents in um, in the U.S.'s history. Um, and a large proportion of those voters are evangelicals that see the protection of Israel as one of the pr most important priorities um, and one of the reasons that they come out to vote. And um, so for Donald Trump, the normalization of uh, relations with Israel by Arab states plays very, very much to that constituency. Um, and I don't think we should undervalue the, um, the importance of that part of his campaign strategy. He has, and Mike Pompeo has delivered now on uh, this at least... Now we have Egypt, Sudan, two Gulf states, and potentially Jordan all signing up to full normalization of um, of relations with Israel. Now that's for that constituency, um, that is a really important issue. And so when you put those things together, you can see why this has been prioritized and why it's occurred. Uh, the Sudanese military rulers need it to hold on to power. Um, they're basically a small group of uh, corrupt um, 
individuals who are holding on to power of the state against a huge amount of popular um, resentment, requiring external support to hold on to power. And for the US, having Sudan, an Arab state that has been highly critical of Israel um, over the years, um, normalizing relations is a big win for a government that's trying to mo mobilize or a leader that's trying to mobilize evangelicals to go to the polls. I mean, that's why he appointed a Supreme Court judge that was going to vote, uh, likely to vote against abortion, uh, which is the other big ticket item um, of the evangelical movement. So in terms of that constituency, regardless of his corruption, his um, his ineffectualism tackling COVID, his own personal, um, um, uh, what we call it, um, uh, negative traits and a whole range of other things. He has delivered on two, he, he has delivered a huge amount, more than anyone else in recent years, on two big ticket items for evangelicals. And if we think that it if the stats are right, that about 20% of Americans are evangelicals, that is a very, very large number of people coming out to vote across the US in support of Trump. And we can see that in the numbers at the moment. Almost 68 million, or just over 68 million people have voted for Donald Trump. I, don't, I can't tell you what percentage of that are evangelicals, but some large proportion of that will be. And those people are voting because Israel is a, is a much more secure state in their eyes than it was four years ago. And the likelihood of overturning Roe and Wade is far higher today than it was four years ago. And Donald Trump has he's delivered on both of those things. That's so, so, in terms of that that's so creepy, Noah. It's, I mean, uh, there were a whole range of other things that were uh, in relation to the Sudan. It was pointed out that uh, one of the things that was given to them was that they would be taken off the uh, international terrorist list, which exposes the use of bureaucratic t uh, methodologies to corral uh, countries into uh, American hegemony. It's like, I mean, it's like uh, getting sheep ready for this to be shorn. Yeah, well, look, uh, there was a great article in, I think it was Al Jazeera a couple of days ago, that said, Look, for most people in the world, you know, other than symbolically, but for the majority of people in the world, countries like um, Africa, African countries, Latin American countries, a whole range of places, who's the president of the U.S. really matters very little to them. U.S.'s foreign policy in those places really changes very little. To be, and to be honest, it doesn't. The neoliberal in, um, imperial project continues. Um, yeah, there may be some, um, you know, um, minor differences in how it's played out. Drone attacks are still happening in Pakistan, whether it's Obama or um, or Trump or Biden, the likelihood is we're going to get a continuation of that. Um, support for right-wing dictatorships that support the US imperial project in countries in Africa and elsewhere will continue, whether it's Biden or Trump. I mean, the reality is, that whilst this is a sitting here in the U.S. in Australia, this seems like a historic uh, presidential campaign for billions of people around the world. It'll mean squadly dit at the end of the day, because their lives will not change one iota, whether Trump or Biden are in power. Imperial, U.S. imperialism 
will do what US imperialism does, regardless of who the president is. Well, that makes complete sense because, I mean, the whole idea that uh, an individual, a, a masthead person, can actually affect everything that goes on in a massive uh, bureaucracy is crazy. I mean, I have, I have a, um, a, a friend who uh, says that she expects that uh, Trump will win and there will be a civil war. Yeah. Well, look, there's, there's a possibility. Um, there's a possibility. He, um, Trump is mobilising a very militant um, group of people and he's empowered them um, around race and gender in particular. Um, and uh, if Trump loses, there is a... And, and you know, in many ways, the... Um, the decision to make Kamala Harris the running partner, uh, Biden's running partner, was a very courageous one. But in some ways, it'll, it also polarises or, or further um, identifies this divide between um, liberals and, uh, and Republicans, liberals and non-liberal Americans, conservative Americans. Um, and, you know, I've been reading some really interesting literature by people who are saying that, you know, the, the reality is that progressives, whether they're liberals in America or the, or the left in Australia, whatever that means, the sort of progressive movements, have really polarised and in some ways um, pushed, driven uh, conservatives away. Uh, by the by, the way that they've uh, put, they've sort of delivered the message around progressive rights, um, and you know that that in a sense the left doesn't have a language to speak to people who don't agree with their message, um, and so we have this real polarisation. The left has to think about how it can deliver the progressive um, message to people who don't necessarily feel like they agree with it, that they agree with the uh, the tenor of equality in the way that it's being pushed, because it does, equality, when equality for people who are minorities means that people who have privileges lose them. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And, and, the yeah. Fa- and the fact that all these people are dying of COVID because of uh, uh, a plan that wasn't put into place, because they had a plan, uh, I mean, it's a no-brainer to a sensible person, but obviously there's a lot more at play. <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed there is, and you know, I think we've we, we've got to think about how the way that, um, in particular, um, left-wing parties, or uh, you know, that that terminology now doesn't really have the same meaning as it had. 30 or 40 years ago. but Maybe humanist. That, Maybe humanist yeah, is a better word. Yeah, or parties way. that have a progressive agenda on social issues need to think about how their support for neoliberalism and for the market and for the hollowing out of the state and for a whole range of other things have actually impacted on the their ability to... Um, speak to people who are alienated by that project. You know, this, this is where popular, right-wing populism has been able to say, you know, we can we can hear your marginalisation, your alienation, 
I mean, one of the things that the right has done really effectively is divide the uh, professional or what we call what we might call white collar um, working class from the blue collar working class. I know those terms don't have the same meaning they used to have, but this idea that people who are academics or creatives who work for a living and earn an income, and in current times, um, or teachers or whoever it might be, whose incomes are just as precarious now as they, as others, um, many others, not all, um, are somehow a different class from people who are truck drivers or you know um, tradies or whatever has been a really effective project making wage earners see themselves as opponents um, whereas the very very rich who benefit from the uh, neoliberal project are somehow allied to the blue collar or working class and have their same their interests at heart you know that that ability to do that you know and trump's a really good Example of that, a multimillionaire who somehow has convinced people who are working class or even dispossessed or, or sort of what, what we might call lumpen proletariat, you know, the sort of um, marginal workers, um, uh, barely employed, um, that he represents their interests is a really interesting sleight of hand. But it's a very effective one. Because I looked a little bit further into this history, uh, Jean Debs was a, a, a very important uh, socialist orator and he went for the uh, United States presidency. Um, Wilson, who you know we all know as the president who was in favour of the League of Nations, was the one who made sure that he was put in prison for 10 years and uh, and he destroyed his health. So uh, there's a famous quote from Gene Debs, which is that, uh, I don't want to rise above the ranks, I want to rise with the ranks. It must play in people's historical mind the lessons of, uh, of oppression, and the people that actually step outside it have to be majorly courageous, effectively. Yeah, indeed, indeed. I mean, it is it is true that those lessons of I mean, one of the things we have to be aware of we're not we're not in the 1920s or 30s, but there are a lot of parallels today with what happened in that period, and there are lessons we can learn. I mean, for example, um, um, Leon Trotsky makes the point in his um, in his analysis of fascism or his um, explanation of fascism that really the left. Um, and the way that it splintered and didn't see the fascists as the major threat, but saw, you know, social democrats, for example, as a greater threat. The communists saw the social democrats as a greater threat than the fascists, and the democrats saw the communists as a greater threat than the fascists. It was the was was one of the reasons the fascists won in the in Germany and in Italy in the 1920s and 30s. And that we shouldn't be we should be alert to that today. That in fact, in places where there is opportunity for alliance against reactionary forces, we should be taking that opportunity to ally. So the Greens and Labor for Australia, for example, in Australia, should probably form a much closer uh, working um, uh, sort of relationship, such as what we're seeing in New Zealand. 
because it provides an opportunity for forces that are on the other side of the political spectrum to rally themselves. And that's what the Conservatives have done so well. If you think about who is allied together in the Conservative sort of group, you can see that their interests don't align. In fact, in many places they conflict. You know, racists and a big industrialists who want cheap um, immig immigrant labour. Um, you know, evangelicals and um, Zionists, you know, um, who, you know, the evangelicals believe that Israel will be sort of destroyed when Jesus comes a second time. And the, those pushing for the strengthening of Israel as a Jewish state um, really shouldn't be allied together, but they are. And there's a whole group of these people who are conservatives who are in this particular alliance um, voting for people who represent them. Um, but the left hasn't got that same capacity to build a congregation of people whose interests may not be entirely aligned, but who at least politically stand up against uh, those that they're opposed to. I mean, you know, the questions around mining and uh, are a great example of where Labor and the Greens don't align and fight. In fact, the Labor Party often splinters around issues of mining. Um, nonetheless, they should be able, despite these issues, they should come together as some sort of block to strengthen their capacity to stand up to um, to their political opponents, but they don't. And that allows conservative movements to come together. I mean, neoliberals and, um, and one nation have very little in common. It takes a realisation that um, of common interests. If you can find some really um, major issues that you can find common interest on, then you can hang, the, you can sort of put the differences aside to achieve those common um, interests. And I think the, you know, I know climate change is one of them. There's no doubt that has to be one. Um, but you know, for Labor and the Greens in particular, it does seem that the humanist project rather than the economic project is something that they could build a um, they could build a major agenda around and potentially challenge um, the reactionary forces the the forces on the right the political parties on the right by coming up with a narrative that is consistent and visionary that people can believe in and, you know, potentially that could be a, 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 an incredibly, um, you know, sort of historically changing... Um, pro I, I mean, I don't know. I'm No, no, no. Well, the Deloitte, the, yeah. there's been a report from Deloitte that has just outlined... I mean, and Deloitte's hardly a, um, a left-wing think tank or anything, but De Deloitte's has outlined the projected loss of jobs and uh, loss of economy... Uh, if Australia does not take a, a grip on this uh, issue of climate change, it's quite clear that this federal government that we've got is leading us into... I mean, it's the Titanic. It's it, it is actually the Titanic that they're doing. It's a reenactment. Yeah, well, I mean, we've all known that for years... Well, not all of us, but uh, you know, some of us have known that for a number of years now. Um, and, you know, the U.S. is an example of a country that continues to 
sort of, I don't know, sail on the sinking ship or try and, you know, uh, try and save the sinking ship in terms of, you know, as we said, almost 50% of voters have voted for someone who's, um, you know, this is at a time when, yeah, a time when the, you know, the health system is in crisis, the people are dying in historically large numbers, the 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 West Coast has had some of the most horrific fires they've ever had to deal with. Um, you know the the wheat belt is um, drying up, um, and you know you go on hurricane. But you know, as I said, for people who, I mean, one of the things about the evangelicals that um, I've known for some years, I read a, a quite an interesting piece by George Monbiot um, a number of years ago, where he embedded himself in. He did some sort of um, um, studies of evangelical movements in um, the US. He was really interested in the question of why they don't support um, environmental issues, given you know the, they, the Bible says that um, they must because you know the the environment is the work of God. Um, and he realised that most of them believe the world, the end of the world is nigh, and they're going to be saved when when with the second coming. Um, so for them, long-term issues and the long-term health of the planet or the economy really means nothing um, because their interests are in ensuring that the conditions that they believe, their interpretation of the conditions for the second coming have to be first and foremost. They want the world to end. They want the world to end so they can be saved. That's their mission. So... You know what happens to the planet in fifty years is really of no interest to them. Uh, so I mean, when you start thinking about that as the um, psychological position of someone who's, you know, of we are talking a large proportion of Americans. If it is twenty percent, and that's the number I've seen um, numerous times, we are talking fifty or sixty million people in the most powerful country in the world believe that. Their, their mission is to bring about the end of the world. When you start, when you think about it that way, you can understand why the world is so in such a critical place. It, it gets even more worrying for us um, because our prime minister, more than likely, has a very similar um, um, belief because his church. Um, and the pastor that leads it has come out and said, actually, you know, we must work toward, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, um, that the Pentecostal mission is to um, produce a world that will bring about the second coming of God, of Jesus. So, you know, it's very possible that our um, our own prime minister believes that we, he is working towards bringing about the end of the world. And if that's, if that's the Pentecostal belief, and he is a Pentecostalist, either he's not a true Pentecostalist, or he believes in that the end of the world is nigh, and he has a responsibility as a Pentecostal, as a Christian, to play his part in bringing about the end of the world. That's, I mean, you know. Thanks for talking to me. You've given me lots to think about. Yeah, if anyone wants to follow up on that um, that um, 
there's a piece in the monthly about um, Scott Morrison's Pentecostal beliefs that might be worth the read for any of your listeners and yourself, Annie, if you haven't already looked at it. Um, it's very, very well written. Well, that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this week. Uh, we uh, found out a little bit about some voting anomalies in the uh, northwest ward of uh, Moreland Council. We heard from the uh, East Gippsland dispatches. We uh, got a word from what it's like to live under the oppression of the cashless debit welfare card, uh, thanks to Over the Wall. Uh, we then moved on to uh, hear from uh, Kevin and the week that was. We finished with a word with uh, Noah and uh, hopefully... So next week we'll be live and uh, even Kevin's going to uh, shake the sleep out of his eyes and talk to us live. No more preempting. Hear from me next week. to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.